The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Nigel Brockton. He is the director of research at the American Institute for Cancer Research. Dr. Brockton earned his PhD in the genetic epidemiology of colorectal cancer at the University of Aberdeen in 2003 followed by postdoctoral studies at the University of Dundee. Dr. Brockton has first-hand experience with cancer, being diagnosed in his final year of high school, and then his cancer returned while an undergraduate studying marine biology in Scotland. He then shifted to cancer research and has a passion for the field of cancer prevention and survivorship. We are going to focus specifically on alcohol's role in cancer initiation and prevention, but we'll also talk about his research into inflammation, lifestyle, and cancer. Welcome, Dr. Brockton. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm pleased to have you. I'm a big fan of the American Institute for Cancer Research. There's a lot of good consumer education materials there. I'm curious to know why you focused your research on looking at colorectal cancer. The truthful answer is that I was applying for PhDs and that's the one I got accepted into. But obviously it's a very lifestyle-related cancer. And at that time, there was a big sort of search for the the interactions between how our genes played with our dietary intakes. And that really led me into a sort of broader area of lifestyle and cancer. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the role of inflammation is one that certainly has made the headlines in recent years. It's become more familiar for us to be talking about. I wonder from a research perspective and a scientific perspective, if you could explain inflammation and how that increases our risk for cancer. So if you think of inflammation really as a response to wounding, whether that's at the sort of microscopic level or actually wound healing, uh, you know, when you cut yourself, So it is a regenerative process, and cancer is the uncontrolled growth of cells. So all of the the growth factors that are, when they're used properly, are there for beneficial effects. Those can actually, in the wrong circumstances, cause cancer to develop. So acute inflammation, where you're responding to a specific stimulus or wounding, it's totally appropriate. And there are lots of systems, if you like, in place to resolve inflammation. But when those fail and inflammation becomes chronic, your base, it's, it's a bit like putting fertilizer on cells. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Well, it seems that inflammation is a chronic condition in our society. And I wonder, can you talk about what could lead to chronic inflammation? Probably the most common cause is obesity. That is a chronic, uh, low-grade chronic inflammatory state because evolutionally, the immune system and our ability to fight infections and, and heal ourselves is an energetic process. So if you, if you have too much energy, 
if you like, in the system. I don't mean you know, you're, you're not fatigued. I just, <laughs> too much energy availability in the system, in a system that has been has evolved to be quite frugal. Then there's too much of this stuff floating around. Other aspects are you know, the microbiome. Our diets are not optimal anymore for most people. So we have microbiomes, so the bacteria that live in, in our gut and actually on, on and in most of our organs that are not the populations that we are, we have evolved to support. And so there's a reaction against those as well. So there are lots of sources of inflammation. Right. Now, your research has looked at a variety of lifestyle factors, including exercise, diet, micronutrients, and over-the-counter medications and the spread of cancer and survival. Can we dive into those a little bit before we take a bigger dive into alcohol? Yeah. So I really came to this from my PhD, which was looking at the genes that control, uh, big word, xenobiotic metabolism, which in, in the context of my PhD was really the charred meat hypothesis. So mm. we know that eating too much red meat and processed meat increases your risk of colorectal cancer. And the prevailing theory back in the early or late 90s when I started my PhD was that it was the more big words, heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatics, basically the charred bits on meat that are carcinogens, but they're not actually carcinogens carcinogenic when you consume them, but they get activated by enzymes in the body. So I was studying that. And while I was writing my PhD, I came to the conclusion that I didn't think we were ever really going to get to the bottom of it. (laughs) So we know there's a very strong association that remains to this day. And there are several mechanisms, including ones that are not dependent on cooking, that could explain the link between red meat and processed meat. The other half of my PhD was looking at folate metabolism. So folate is used for making DNA. So actually some of the early chemotherapy agents were anti-folates. So they would break down folate or compete for folate so that cancer cells couldn't get access to folate to make DNA. But folate is also a very good thing for building cells appropriately. So there's a balance. And when I was writing up my PhD, there was this contradiction in the literature and in and in my data that I was struggling to explain, but I felt I had enough information to explain it. But it just took me a while to sort of crank through the the idea. And trying to put this simply, the there's a, a genetic change, and there's lots of these, but this one these are called polymorphisms. So when if you like, a mutation is found in more than 1% of the population. It's called a polymorphism. It's a common change that usually doesn't have a very strong effect. But there's this one that there's been lots of research on in folate. And although it reduces your... It has an effect on, on this enzyme, but it only has an effect on that enzyme if folate is low. But we saw that the strongest effect was in people with the highest folate intake. So somehow, in these people that were consuming lots of folate, their cells, that that enzyme, was being exposed to low folate. And one of the explanations for that 
through a couple of different mechanisms was inflammation, which in easy language destroys folate. And that's how I got into, that was how my interest in inflammation began. And that spun out into vitamin D and lots of other aspects related to lifestyle in prevention and prognosis. Interesting. Well, I have to ask then, when we're recommending specific diets, I tend to be a food first kind of dietitian. I don't recommend supplements. I recommend that people get their nutrients from foods, if at all possible. But folic acid, you know, that of course is something that we find in leafy greens. Folate is a, we think of foliage to help people make the connection. And we would certainly recommend a diet that's high in leafy greens, dark leafy greens and fruits and vegetables as a rule, those high fiber phytonutrient or plant nutrient rich foods. What would you add to that? I think that's the right approach. You know, AICR does not recommend supplements for for cancer prevention. There are other settings in which supplements are justifiable. I wouldn't recommend that someone avoid leafy greens uh, because of folate. The research is ongoing in this area, but I I think you're absolutely right. Foods first, eat a diet that's rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. Right. Well, fiber seems to be very important, becoming more important the more we learn about the microbiome. And I wonder if you have any advice on fiber. Uh, Most Americans need more of it. The Mm. typical American eats about 15 grams per day. I eat pretty much a loaf of whole grain bread a day, so I get plenty of fiber. I also, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables. And again, it's better to get it from whole foods, whether it's whole grains or fruits and vegetables. Beans are a super source of fiber. People do have to, if they've got a low fiber diet, they should sort of build up slowly. Otherwise, they tend to eat a couple of high fiber diets and then decide it's not a good idea for them. (laughs) Right. I totally agree. I think that increasing fiber is one of the most important things we can do to improve our diet. And certainly from whole foods, plant-based foods. All right. Now, I want to launch into an area of cancer prevention that I think is not well known to people, and that has to do with alcohol consumption. I think that for those of us who have been working in diet, nutrition, and health, there has been a halo around specifically red wine because of resveratrol or those polyphenols that are found in grape skins, and therefore red wine. But recently, I've attended a few dietetic conferences where this has really been questioned. And I wanted you to help explain how alcohol is a carcinogen. Well, the International Agency for Cancer Research in France, part of the World Health Organization, assigned alcohol as a carcinogen several decades ago. It is a carcinogen, and the health halo around red wine, I share your pain. We've done a lot of synthesis of the global evidence, and it doesn't matter what you drink, alcohol increases your risk of cancer. You know, there are different dose response curves, so the amount of alcohol that represents a significant risk for each different type of cancer differs. For breast cancer, we've known for a long time that any daily alcohol consumption 
significantly increases your risk. Same for esophageal cancer, same for head and neck cancer. For colorectal cancer, there is a bit of a non-linear curve. So it's not significantly increased at one drink per day, but it is by two drinks a day. So somewhere between that. And that's significant because we actually advocated to the dietary guidelines for Americans Committee that the the recommendations for men and women should be the same. So one drink per day. Currently, it's one drink per day for women, two drinks a day for men. And we know that at two drinks per day, you are substantially increasing your risk. And liver cancer, uh, stomach cancer, these are cancers that are actually more common in males. So head and neck cancer, liver cancer, colorectal, stomach They're all more common in males. So this argument that the levels should be different for men and women, yes, breast cancer is the most common cancer in women, uh, but these other cancers actually contribute substantially to to the burden in men. So we would prefer, we're not, we do get a little bit of slack for, or stick, I guess, for not saying zero alcohol. But, you know, we recommend for cancer prevention, it's best not to drink. And then if you do choose to drink, drink within the guidelines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an uphill battle to uh, convince people that it's a substantial risk. But I think it's third on the list of still smoking is the top risk factor for cancer, obesity is next, and then alcohol. So it has a, makes a, a significant contribution to the burden of disease. Yeah. Well, let me take one break because we're halfway through. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Nigel Brockton, and he is the Director of Research at the American Institute of Cancer Research. I want to understand how exactly cancer is, I'm going to use the word initiated. Is that correct? How does alcohol initiate cancer development? So- the the initiation word is a kind of hangover from a, a previous view of cancer where it was initiation, promotion, progression. And that really changed in 2000 when two scientists, uh, Hahnemann and Weinberg, came out with a paper called The Hallmarks of Cancer. And that really helped to conceptualize what it was a cancer cell needed to operate as a cancer cell. And there's a bunch of scientific terms, but really they're around avoiding cell death. So when cells start to accumulate mistakes and and start to go awry, there are all sorts of mechanisms in place to make that cell self-destruct. And when those systems fail, inappropriate cells are able to survive. There's insufficiency of growth factors so we spoke about inflammation earlier so the cells just tend to keep growing by accumulating these hallmarks that's what makes a cancer cell the final one is invasion and metastasis which is actually the one that really defines a cancer because all of the other attributes are actually possessed by benign lesions so polyps and warts you know all of these benign tumors that exist but what actually how alcohol does that the most likely answer is through 
one through inflammation and two through direct genotoxicity. So genotoxicity is when something attacks the genome, the, the DNA. And alcohol is converted to acetaldehyde, both in the liver and in the by the gut microbiome. And then that interacts with the cells and that causes there's ongoing repair of DNA all the time. And most of the mistakes that are introduced, so-called mutations, are actually when repair is done incorrectly. And that introduces mutations into the genome and the cell. If that's in one of the pathways that control these hallmarks of cancer, the cells move towards. And, and this is why it takes, you know, most cancers probably take 20 years to develop from, you know, from the first changes to that cell, surviving that, adapting, and then accumulating more until eventually it's accumulated all of the characteristics that it needs to start causing major problems. I was reading on the AICR website about alcohol and cancer risk. And this was back in 2017. There was an excellent article that spoke about how cancer affects certainly the DNA but I also read another piece that I thought was fascinating, and I didn't know about this, that the alcohol molecule can physically help carry other cancer-causing substances into cells. So that idea of the solvent that helps the, if you like, dissolve other carcinogens and allow them access to cells, it's theoretically possible. I don't know that we have a lot of evidence of that directly happening. Okay. Um, so it's for, for lots of aspects of cancer research, there are theories out there and plausible mechanisms by things, how things can work. Seeing that happen in a Petri dish, or, you know, a cell culture dish, is different to that happening in humans. But for all of these very consistent, strong effects, the mechanisms are kind of secondary to the association that we know there's a link between consuming these components and increasing your cancer risk. Yeah. I love to study mechanisms, you know, the, the how and why behind some of these recommendations, which is why I bring these up. The other ones listed in the newsletter were interesting to me as well. And I didn't realize this one mentions that too much alcohol can lead to low levels of vitamin D and other nutrients, which may play a role in lowering cancer risk? What would you say about that? To be honest, I'm not familiar with the, the, the vitamin D one. Um, okay. It can certainly lower your folate. And that's actually what, when I was publishing the work on how these cells are exposed to low folate. Alcohol is one of the ways that can happen because acetaldehyde cleaves the folate molecule and renders it ineffective. So I'm trying to think how the, the vitamin D one would work. I'm going to have to look that one up. That's all right. <laughs> That's okay. In your research on vitamin D, I know that there has been research in the past looking at vitamin D saying we should make sure that our vitamin D blood levels are higher than what many Americans' levels are. In other words, many Americans have low levels of vitamin D. We're inside. We sit behind computers a lot. We don't have that outdoor exposure that we used to have, say, 100 years ago. Did you find that to be the case as well, though, with vitamin D in your research? 
So it was probably even worse because I was doing my vitamin D research up in Canada, where <laughs> right. for a large proportion of the year, you're beyond the, the latitude that the sun can actually create vitamin D through your skin at all. And during those months, you are not exposing your skin to, <laughs> to the sun, right? Uh, even if it could, because you're wrapped up against the chilling cold. So my work in, in Canada was looking at particularly at breast cancer metastases. And we know that a, a proportion of people, that the real distinction seems to be with those who are deficient. So there are kind of three levels of vitamin D. There's deficient, insufficient, and sufficient. And we don't see the really strong effects in that insufficient phase, but it differs for different exposures. So we are hoping, and well, when you do these research, these types of research, you have to wait for the number of outcomes. So we're trying to look at bone metastases, because obviously vitamin D has a very strong impact on bone metabolism. And bone is the most common site of metastasis in breast cancer patients. So that was our main focus. We did try to do a study, the parallel study in colorectal cancer, where probably from a, it's, it's not, there, there is conflicting evidence on vitamin D and risk of cancer. One of the strongest, the, the link is strongest in colorectal cancer, but it's not really fully confirmed. But there are many plausible mechanisms by which vitamin D could increase the metastasis of colorectal cancer, particularly to the liver. But we tried doing that study and we just couldn't get the recruitment to the same level that we were able to in the breast cancer patients. Interesting. So that remains a bit of an open question, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, just one more comment on breast cancer, because the research that I've seen shows that alcohol can lead to higher estrogen levels. How does that happen? There are several different ways. One way is that alcohol is actually, and alcoholic drinks are empty calories. And so it's associated with obesity. Adipose tissue creates its own estrogen. And particularly in postmenopausal women, where there's not the production of estrogen from the ovaries, and you're in a context where cells aren't expecting, if you like, to, to have a source of estrogen. So, but certainly through obesity and yeah, as I just explained. Yeah, right. Well, I've seen it especially as a heightened red flag for women who have had estrogen positive breast cancers to be especially careful to avoid alcohol, which is why I asked. We just have a couple of minutes left and I want to open the floor to you. I thought it was interesting that you had, you know, as an agency, you had approached the Dietary Guidelines Committee and requested a different recommendation on alcohol. I'm sure that there is a lot of kickback from those who profit from the sales of alcoholic beverages. But if you had to give our listeners any kind of final summary recommendations based on your cancer research expertise, what would it be? So cancer prevention is a package. We have our 10 cancer prevention recommendations, which I'm happy to, to read out. Basically, Please do. Well, the first one is to be a healthy weight. The second one is to be physically active. The third one 
is to eat a diet rich in whole grains, vegetables, fruits, and beans. Fourth, limit consumption of fast foods and other processed foods high in fat, starches, and sugars. Limit the consumption of red and processed meat. Limit the consumption of sugar-sweetened drinks. Limit alcohol consumption. And under each one of these, we have additional kind of notes, but I'm just trying to read them through quickly for... Yeah, sure. For Under the limit to alcohol consumption, it's for cancer prevention, it's best not to drink alcohol. Do not use supplements for cancer prevention. Aim to meet your nutritional needs through diet alone. For mothers, breastfeed your baby if you can. And after a cancer diagnosis, follow our recommendations for cancer prevention if you can. So all of those together are a package. And I love the way Karen Collins, our nutritional advisor, says it. it's a call for action, not perfection. Sure, you can pursue perfection, but the main thing is that people address the ones that they feel they can initially. And I think sugar-sweetened drinks and alcohol are probably the two that are easiest to start if you wanted to start changing your lifestyle. We know that losing weight is hard. We know that for people adopting physical activity is a slow process. But alcohol and sugar-sweetened drinks, there are great alternatives out there. So those are changes that you can make in your life very quickly and easily. (laughs) Right. But although I started by kind of numbering these, we don't present them as numbered recommendations anymore we do like people to think of them as a as a package and these are all based on strong evidence where we take all of the evidence from around the world and i'm sure your listeners are very aware that when if you're interested in this kind of stuff in the media one week you'll see that something's good for you the next you'll see it's meant to be bad for you and people are left with kind of health information fatigue. So we try and cut through that and distinguish evidence from opinion. So this is all based on strong evidence. So it shouldn't really be surprising, but it, but it's it's good that we now know when you score people by how well they meet these recommendations, the people that meet more of them have better outcomes. So really just start by selecting the ones that you feel you can work on and When people have success with one area of lifestyle, they tend to be more motivated to push to others. And actually, especially with sugar-sweetened drinks, it's the highest source of added sugar in the American diet. So if you start addressing that, you start to address the healthy weight recommendation. Once you start addressing the healthy weight recommendation, suddenly physical activity doesn't seem so daunting. So... You have to meet people where they are, but look at where you can make changes. And to do that, I really recommend the Cancer Health Check. It's called cancerhealthcheck.org. If you go put that into a a browser, it's a very quick two or three minute questionnaire, which kind of tells you where you are in terms of meeting the, the cancer prevention recommendations and makes recommendations for how you could maybe improve if you're if you're not meeting them or thumbs up if you are 
That's fantastic. Thank you for that tool. And thank you for your research and your time. Unfortunately, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Nigel Brockton. He is the Director of Research at the American Institute for Cancer Research. I will provide a link both to the cancerhealthcheckup.org site as well as AICR.org so that we can all keep up with advances in research and find the best lifestyle factors to keep us cancer-free. Thank you so much, Dr. Brockton, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you.